Welcome to the Inspired Leader podcast, the series in which we explore the sources of inspiration of a fascinating variety of leaders. I went from one interesting job to another as they arose and I looked for opportunities and to say that there was a, a plan behind it would be deeply flattering, I think. The thing I've discovered since I've been in Parliament and in government is that if you do use your influence and energy in the right way, you really can change things. It was only when I got into the Cabinet that I discovered that I had real leadership qualities and was able to lead an organisation. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Vince Cable, formerly Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills in the recent coalition government, and now leader of the Liberal Democrats Party. Sir Vince, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, yeah. So I'd like to start with the fact um, you've become a very high profile and well-respected politician in recent years. But um, it will surprise a lot of people, I think, that you only entered the House of Commons actually in 1997, so relatively recently. You had a very rich and varied life up to that point. Can you just give me a quick sense of you know, how that unfolded and some of the things that you did in that period? Yes, I was in my mid-50s when I got into Parliament and something happened between being a university student in the 35 years, a third of my life passed uh, without actually getting anywhere near to political power. I don't want to talk you through all the boring details of my life history, but I suppose the key turning points were at university. I dabbled in politics. I was planned to be a scientist, but I switched to economics. And I suppose I was thereafter looking for things which gave me exposure to serious economic decision-making uh, and some political openings as they arose. I think that the things I would highlight was my first job. I went to work for Joma Kenyatta in the finance ministry in Kenya, fantastic university of life experience. I also got married to my first wife, uh, Olympia, who sadly died, but was a kind of rock of my personal life for three decades. Um, but then had episodes in Glasgow, acquiring a PhD, which was actually a bit of a waste of time, but it, it gave me experience on a city council in my twenties, yeah. running a big city, again, remarkable background experience, uh, and then periods in think tanks, international organisations, latterly working for Shell in uh, scenario planning, then as their chief economist. So lots of opportunities to read, research, um, write books, do business. Uh, it was all enriching, but it was all rather random, and there was no kind of guiding hand. I went from one interesting job to another as they arose, and I looked for opportunities. And uh, to say that there was a, a plan behind it would be deeply flattering, I think. <laughs> and then you got elected to Parliament. Yeah. And out of the blue, really, I eventually became the MP. Uh, I was then in my late 50s. And life has, you know, since then revolved around politics and family. Yeah. Um, and again, my first few years in politics, my aim was simply to survive, uh, get re-elected, do a useful job as a backbencher. But towards the, as the financial crisis approached, I became a kind of national celebrity because I'd been saying, I think, fundamentally the right things about what was happening in the economy, got a big national exposure and then had a big job in the coalition government. There's a lot of yeah. story around how that happened and uh, whether it was the right thing to do, but I had five years as a senior cabinet minister. I was the oldest member of the cabinet, apart from Ken Clark, 
but I felt young actually I felt for the first you know in my 60s I was actually doing what I wanted to do and I felt well qualified to do and I was just embarking on a new career so I, I didn't feel it as a sort of end of life experience but sort of beginning <laughs> of life experience no. and then rather traumatically lost my seat in 2015 embarked on a new career in my 70s writing novels, doing competitive ballroom dancing, chairing interesting businesses. And then it all came to an end when we had a premature election and I got re-elected again, <laughs> not planned. <laughs> again. And then I found myself <laughs> leading political parties. So the, 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 I've, my life is one really of doing lots of different interesting things, not really having a guiding plan other than to you know be fulfilled and being in the right place at the right time but fairly late in life yeah yeah <laughs> one thing i noticed when i read um back over your autobiography you talked about that earlier period of life before serving the house of commons in a couple of ways which are interesting one of which you referred to it several times as a kind of wilderness or exile and you talked about the long march you went mm. through mm. to get into politics but at another level, you talk about it with fondness and a degree of gratitude about the experience it gave you of the world mm. that's probably been a great value to you now. How do you balance those two sort of perspectives as you look back over that earlier period? Well, I was trying to rationalise you know, a big chunk of the middle part of my life where things happened. And as you quite rightly said, I did feel exiled in a sense that I had, I think, deep down wanted to get into politics and play a major role hadn't succeeded. I did in the 80s stand twice in York, which is my hometown, as part of the SDP Liberal Alliance, yeah. uh, and I didn't get in. And I felt that actually was, that was the end of the road. So I did feel sad about that. And I had invested a lot of time and emotional energy in it. I'd got a lot of backing from my wife. I was having to travel up to York every weekend. Yeah. It wasn't easy, and she was very long-suffering about it. So there was that sense of uh, losing my way, but at the same time I'd spent, you know, 25, 30 years doing really interesting jobs yeah. in interesting places, traveling the world, <clears throat> being able to write about it. I developed a very deep understanding of interesting issues. I mean, India, for example, I visited a lot, got to know regularly about it. Um, I suppose loved the country in many ways, and I would never have done so otherwise. I, I was also able to spend time with my family, three kids. They've all turned out well. I love my wife a lot. We were very close, and when she got sick, I was able to spend time with her. And, and all of those things I wouldn't probably have been able to do if I'd been at the front of politics yeah, yeah. at an earlier stage. And what is it about politics that you love and fascinates you so much? Is, is there something there that you can pinpoint? Uh, no, it is difficult to pinpoint, but I suppose it is, um, I mean, it's a terrible cliche, but, you know, the thing about making a difference and the thing I've discovered since I've been in Parliament and in government is that if you do use your influence and energy in the right way, you really can change things. You can change things for people's individual lives as a local MP, you can change policy. And I've got a long string of things that I initiated as Secretary of State that I'm quite proud of as a legacy. I, yeah. learned, I learned how to pull the levers and make things happen. And just writing about things and commentating or being a, a, an official, I mean, you're close to that, but you're not, you, you always have a, a subordinate role. Whereas if you're in a political position, you can drive it. 
are there any particular values or beliefs that have been the foundation for the way in which you've wanted to make the difference you describe? Yes, I mean, again, I'm, I'm trying to avoid getting too much into cliches here, but I suppose I've always been motivated by, you know, a sense of kind of fairness and social justice and recoiled from seeing poverty and um, suffering. I mean, that, that probably is at the front of it, partly because I had a mixed marriage. My late wife was Indian. I got involved early on in life in fighting racial discrimination and trying to help build a country that was much more tolerant. And, I mean, that's very close to my emotions. Uh, and I suppose having had a proper economic training, I do think, like an economist, that may be good or it may be bad, but, but it, it it does give you a framework for analysing problems. Yeah. Um, eventually you become quite committed to that way of thinking. I mean, I, if I'm approaching, say, international trade, I mean, I approach it with, with as an economist would approach it, and that can be quite irritating for other people, but it does give me a frame of reference and a way of looking at problems yeah. in, a, in a clear, clear way. So, Vince, you, you wrote your autobiography back in 2009, and I was struck by the, the final sentence in that. The, the, the parting words were, this is no time to quit. Now, those words proved to be pretty insightful <laughs> because you went on to achieve a great deal since then, serving in the Cabinet and more recently now taking on the role of leader of the Liberal Democrats. I'm interested to know, what is it now that's driving you forward? Do you have a sense of purpose now to fuel you as you enter this new phase of your political career? Oh, yes, I do. I mean, I know exactly what I would like to do, whether I can deliver it as a different matter. But... I mean, I don't want to go through the whole history of what's happened to my party since the coalition government, but we've had a bad, bad few years. So my sense of purpose are twofold, really. I mean, one of which is to sort of lift my party back up again so it's at the centre of British political life rather than just on the peripheries and struggling to survive, which is arguably what's happened over the last few years. And I think the second is around Brexit. It's a big turning point in British political history. I and my party have a very clearly defined role in it. We're very much Remainers. We're very committed to staying in with the basic structures of the European Union. We want a referendum on the facts and, and as a way of resolving this eventually. Uh, so I, you know, I've got a central position in the national political debate and I want to make sure we win that argument. When you look back over your career, in, in the conversations I've had with a number of leaders, there have often been transformational encounters or experience that have made a real impact at certain stages of one's development as a person, as a, as a leader. I just wonder if there are any particular sources or phases of inspiration that you look back on as being particularly important for you. Well, I think the periods I had as Glasgow councillor were quite transformational. I made a lot of very bad mistakes, actually. I did some very good things, actually. When I go back to Glasgow, I can see evidence of the things that I did when I was there. I quite a leading role in the council, but I did make bad mistakes politically. There's a question about whether I should have stayed behind and, <coughs> and not moved down to London as I did. But that was certainly a very key episode. Earlier, of course, the two years in Kenya, sort of growing up in many ways and also getting married and developing my long-term relationships, those were critical periods. Um, I think one of the things which I've learned much later, which I didn't learn then, was that I had some kind of leadership qualities. Until quite late on, 
I was quite a loner. I just did my own thing. I, you know, wrote books, did yeah. did interesting projects, drifted from one thing to the other. But I never really saw my role as sort of leading other people. And it was only, I think, when I got into the cabinet, surprisingly enough, that I discovered that I had real leadership qualities and was able to lead an organization, in the case of my department, which had thousands of people in head office and ultimately had a million or so people. And I was able to define, give them a sense of direction, encourage them, sustain morale in difficult periods, all these things that leaders are supposed to do. And I discovered I had a talent for it, but that was very late in life and I hadn't really prepared for it yeah. or, or done anything comparable earlier. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So when you look at that realisation, are there any insights that you got about the way you found you were able to lead and inspire other people mm. that you could share that might be of value to people who might be listening? Well, I think you have to be something I tended not to do earlier which was to you, you have to be willing to take risks uh, you have to be willing to stake out positions the one thing I did and I realized it it influenced what happened in the, the next five years is that a few days after I'd gone into my government department I was completely at sea actually I mean I thought you know you, you've no idea what you're supposed to be doing nobody's prepared you for it the permanent secretary uh, said, well, we think it would be a good idea if you went and spoke to the whole department. And he assembled, I don't know, three or 4,000 people in Westminster Central Hall. And he says, speak to them, tell them what you want them to do. And that exercise forced me to think very clearly, what is it that I want to do with this extraordinary opportunity I have been given? And I was able then to set out my you know, Ten Commandments or whatever they were, and it provided a template for the work that I did subsequently. Yeah. So I think if you are leading a big organisation, I think it's very important not to drift into it. I think it's not, you've got to try and find a defining moment at which you set out your vision about what you want and to communicate it, because then that provides a framework which all the people around you can operate yeah. and of course you've then got to refresh it and update it and, and you know fight your battles and you win some you lose some but I think unless you have that framework you tend to get lost yeah yeah exploring that from a slightly different angle there's something about the agenda one has the vision as you describe it but there's also something about the kind of person you are and the way you come across and you're unusual as a politician in being really quite widely respected from across the party spectrum for your authenticity, your forthright views, your honesty. I wonder, to what extent have you thought about the kind of leader you want to be, the kind of person you want to be in the way you show up? Well, I, I do value those qualities and I do try to, I suppose, build on them and trade on them. It, it's not always popular with my own people, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one of the things I'm often criticised for internally is that, you know, I don't appear to be speaking the tribal language and, you know, I'm not going out constantly repeating the slogans and battering the opposition. And indeed, one of my colleagues, perhaps I better not name them, said, I think somebody had described me somewhere as a, a team player and my colleague has said, you must be joking. Uh, the, the, the only way he's a team player is when he's leading the team. And so there was, there, there is an element of wanting to define things on, on my own terms, yeah. I think. And yeah. 
I think if you are heading up a big organisation, in this case a party, but previously a big government yeah. department, you know, there are lots of pressures to conform. And striking the balance between being conformist and therefore being part of the tribe and being independent-minded, it's quite difficult. Yeah. If you're too independent-minded, you lose your own troops. Yeah. Uh, and if you're too conformist, then no one else is listening to you. So, yeah. so getting that balance is really tricky, and I have worked on it. Yeah. And we talked a lot about some of your inspiration, some of the things that fuel you in a positive way. I mean, it must be an incredibly demanding, difficult experience being a politician, the scrutiny, the pressure, the brickbats that come your way the whole time. How have you learned to manage these challenges? Well, I can't overestimate the importance of having, well, certainly in my case, I think this must be true of other people, of having good, loving relationships in the background. I've been very fortunate in having two very happy, loving marriages and coming home at the end of a terrible day and you know, you've made some terrible mistake or yes, somebody's been so. going at you and you don't know how to fight back and being able to go back to somebody who is totally understanding and accepts you without reservation and is you know 100% loyal there is nothing quite compensates for that so you you have to have that and and I think equally it's terribly important to have a few what I would call unconditional friends, you know, people who even if you have rows or you, you fall out with them, you know, you know they're there and, and yeah. they're a basic support network. And I think people in politics who are isolated, emotion, they, they may be gregarious, but they're deep down, they're quite isolated. I think they're very vulnerable to a lot of the pressures. You have to be rooted in, in a good set of relationships. I think that's the only way yeah. you can manage. Yes, I, I can see creating that sort of social backup and support, that environment is incredibly important. But pushing it one step further, in the, in the heat of the moment itself, I mean, the scrutiny, the intensity of your life as a politician must be pretty extreme. How do you handle those moments of crisis, those, those moments of sometimes quite intense personal challenge? Well, with difficulty. I mean, I had certainly when I was in the coalition government, we had some pretty difficult episodes I mean the the initial formation of the government you know you're pilloried by all the people who voted for me tactically because they thought they were keeping the Tories out and then I had my little fallout with Mr Rupert Murdoch as a result of things I'd said and were recorded which was pretty bad yeah um the tuition fee episode um which you know, I mean, we can go into the intricacies of it, but it was actually very politically very, very difficult, caused a lot of internal tension and external anger. Um, I must have had about five really big episodes of that kind during my ministerial career. We had television cameras parked in the garden, and somehow or other yes. you've got to face that. Um, but I think I found I had a kind of inner somewhere, I managed to discover some inner strength from somewhere to to cope with it and not buckle under the pressure yeah yeah so i'm struck if we pull things to a bit of a close i'm struck in the way you've described your life that you sort of you obviously achieved great success late in life but there's not been a master plan you've sort of Mm. gone with the flow a little bit at certain stages yes very much so yeah if you were giving advice to other people who are at an earlier stage in their lives Mm. looking to leave inspired lives that will leave them feeling fulfilled are there any sort of parting thoughts that you'd give them? 
Well, I, th- I think that the main point you've made, I mean, a lot of politics is luck. There are a lot of people I accompanied on the journey who have fallen by the wayside and I've never heard of them again. A lot of it is about being in the right place at the right time. And for a lot of my life, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I finished up in the right place at the right time. I think trying to treat a political career like a normal professional career, you can do that. And there are people that are contemporaries, you know, the David Camerons, Nick Cleggs, George Osborne's, the Miliband brothers, you know, they were all people, they went to university, they did a standard, you know, political apprenticeship, got a seat in Parliament with clever articulate, so got to the top fairly quickly. But they all peaked too early, in my view, and all sort of got burnt out far too early in life, and they're all now on the peripheries. And I think there is an argument for more going with the flow, soaking up experience as you go along, doing different things, making sure you have some time in the private sector, some time in government, and spending time with your family, and you know, and, and treating that as part of the necessary building up of your qualifications. So Vince Cable, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.